You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. Sunday, in reality, is a moment where we offer up ourselves to an amazing God so that when we come here, we don't view church as another aspect to our holiday shopping or our desire for commercial need, where church has, in many occasions, become, uh, let me shop around. Let me uh, see if this fits my needs. So Sunday morning isn't, and you'll always hear me say this, it isn't about our needs, because our needs have been met on the cross. Our biggest needs, which was the need of evacuation of sin, Sunday morning is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about his worship and who we are before him. So, so when you come, friends, this is our mindset and this is our heart. We gather here as God's people. Look around you. This is God's people. Now, if you look around, you'll be like, man, I don't know if this guy really belongs here. I don't know if this girl really belongs here. I, I, I'm kind of iffy about this person. Hey, you're not perfect either. I'm not perfect either. We all stand before God humbly knowing that we need his grace continually. How many of us need God's grace every day in our lives? How many of you can say amen for that? Amen. Amen. So as people that need grace, as people that need God's continuous love, we want to make sure that we, we approach his throne humbly because he's given us that opportunity to do so in spite of who we are. Uh, I want you to open up your your Bibles to John chapter 1 again, and um, we've been spending a great amount of time on verse 14, and just to remind us, last week we, we spent some time supporting verse 14 on the, the book of Hebrews, because we're speaking in particular about what Christ has done. The, the service today is geared towards the the job and the work that Jesus Christ has done. We're celebrating communion today because of what Christ has done. All the songs that we sang, if you paid attention to the songs, it might not be your style of music, but if you paid attention to the lyrics, you'll understand that there's one main focus here, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. What does that mean again? Jesus Christ is our mediator. He stands in place of us before God. How does he do so? Well, the Bible teaches us in the book of Romans that he has justified us, made us clean before God, and therefore in that justification, he has transferred over to us his justice. Can you imagine this for one second? We were not just people. We were not clean people. We were not holy people. And so Jesus Christ imputed is a theological term, transferred over himself into us, giving us his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, so therefore we can stand before God. That is what Jesus Christ does as mediator, and the book of Hebrews helped us a little bit understand this weight of why the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ needed to be done. Because, friends, you and I would never have been able to accomplish this. This was not in our job description as human beings to save ourselves. 
We needed a redeemer and we needed a savior. And the book of Hebrews has helped us understand this a little bit more. And today we're going to try to finish up what we were talking about last week. But I really want to concentrate primarily on understanding the significance of Christ's work in his human role, which is what we've been talking about in verse 14. So I want to read that with you again together so that we can understand this. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Now we've been spending time on the first couple of words in verse 14, the word became flesh. God became a human being. God took on everything that we have as humans. And we've kind of discussed that in deep these last two weeks. But now we're, 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 we're speaking primarily on his work as a human being. What did it mean to accomplish what he accomplished as us, as flesh? And so the reason why I'm spending a lot of time on this is because I'm probably not going to be able to do this again in a very long time unless we take a a specific class on Christology, but I'm spending time on this because when, when the church has or, or, or voids specific doctrines or specific truths, it's left open to attacks of falsehood. It's left open to attacks of heresy, and, and heresy is a big word these days. It's a big uh, concept. What does heresy mean or heterodoxy mean? It basically means attack on scriptural truth. The Bible teaches one thing and heresy will go a whole different way and teach something completely different from what, what the Bible teaches. So as we come to an understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, we must be clear on what Jesus Christ is and who he is and what he has done. And, and this, my friends, is a Big deal. We have centuries of church history that were discussing the very issues that we are discussing. So what I'm going to do today, kind of to set up a historical setting before we jump more into the text, what I'm going to do is read a creed from the early church. I'm talking about 5th century A.D., I'm going to read this to you, and you may be like, well, what are we, what are we doing here? What are, what are we reading? This is the Chalcedonian Creed of the 5th century. Now, to set up a little bit more context here, throughout the first 800 years of the church, uh, right after Christ, we have relatively seven ecumenical councils that dealt with the issue of clarifying who Jesus Christ was. The first one, I think Henry spoke to you about uh, ways back when we were in, in verse 1 and 2, when, when Henry spoke to you on, on the, the, the creed of Nicaea, the creed of 325 that spoke on Christ's deity, which we've understood up until this moment, that Jesus Christ was God. How many of you guys remember that? Jesus Christ is God. And now, a couple hundred years later, well, in between Chalcedon and Nicaea, there was another uh, uh, council that met together to affirm again what Nicaea was speaking about in 381. And then in 451, we have the Chalcedonian Creed, which we're going to read today, specifically clearing up issues on who Jesus Christ was. 
And why this creed had to be uh, is important, we'll get into that a little bit more so you could understand why creeds and confessions are sometimes important. Not because they invent anything new, rather they affirm old truths and they help us understand them a little bit better. So if you don't remember much of what I read in the Chalcedonian Creed, just go to Google at the end of the service and type in Chalcedonian Creed of 451 and it'll come up in, in a lot of pages. So bear with me as I read this. Don't worry, it's not that long. I just really want to zoom in on some concepts that it says. The Creed of 451 says the following. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to manhood, and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now give yourselves a round of applause for hanging in there. You guys deserve it. You guys may have never thought that you would read something from the 5th century and, well, now you guys have heard it. Why is this important, though? This Creed of Chalcedon isn't an invention of a new doctrine by no means. What it is, is it's affirming the doctrinal truths of Scripture. The big question is, why? Why do we have to invent something that Scripture already kind of says? Well, there were people in the 4th, 5th century, ever since, the, since even Jesus' time, that didn't understand this. And we had mentioned this a couple of times already in church. People don't understand it, so what do they do? Because they don't understand it, they invent their own ideas. They kind of shift things around to kind of fit well within the mindset of a human being. To some people, God becoming man, it just doesn't fit well. It's not, it doesn't make sense. How does God live inside of a human being and still be human and still be God? Like, how does that work? So in order to clarify these things up, you have to kind of invent certain things or try to fit your, your notion of God or your theology into what the Word of God says. And we see this time and time again. I had the privilege of, of, of teaching at a marriage conference yesterday night, and we were talking about this, especially when we reach difficult text in, in Scripture. So I was talking on the basis of Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and the first verse 18 says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, 
To say that in our context is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we, are we preaching machismo here? Is this what we're preaching? Is this what the word of God says? And so what ends up happening? People begin to shift the understanding of that and say, well, that's not what Paul means. Or basically, Paul grows up in a patriarchal society. And so because he grows up in a society that demeans women and makes women feel less, like in the Roman culture where women were considered property, that's why Paul is being influenced by the culture. And so Paul tells every woman to submit to their man. And so we begin to fit our theology or our lack of into the context and make a difficult verse like that kind of be less. Like, oh, don't worry about that because that's not really what it means and it doesn't really apply to us. And I spent a whole hour teaching them why that verse says what it says. I can't do that here, obviously, but I'm just trying to get you to understand that difficult doctrines in the Word of God don't mean that we can avoid them or it doesn't mean that we can invent something else about them. It, it yearns for us to bring clarity to the issue. And so the Chalcedonian Creed helps us to get there. Now let me just give you some, some heretical views of Jesus Christ in the early centuries, specifically ones that the Chalcedonian Creed responds to. So in the 4th century, this certain man named Apollinarius, so once again, if you're about to have a child and he's a boy, Apollinarius is a pretty cool name. I'm thinking about that myself. Um, but not so much because he was a heretic. Anyway, uh, Apollinarius establishes this view called Apollinarianism. What does this view say? Well, it says that the logos, or what we've been talking about in John, the word takes on a human body, but not a human soul. So what he is saying is God came into a human being, but he just kind of evacuated everything from that human being that made him human and kind of just inhabited the skeletal frame of a human. And everything else was strictly God inside of that human. The way he thought, the way he acted, the way he talked, the way he did. What made him human was no longer there. It was just God inside of a human skeleton. So if, if, if you want a, a little bit more clarity on that. So let's say you're, if we lived in a mystical uh, kind of Harry Potter kind of a world, your spirit goes into somebody else's body and that person, you begin to drive that person around as if it was you. And so what Apollinarius did was he didn't understand this God taking on this human nature and didn't understand how to qualify a human mind in Jesus Christ. So he includes a, uh, uh, that, that it just takes it away and God's human mind is now in the human. Now for obvious reasons that's incorrect and that's why the Chalcedonian Creed establishes that we cannot separate, divide, or confuse the natures of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get too technical on this. I'm just going to do a brief overview because I don't want to really focus on this. But I just want to teach you that this was very real. And some of these doctrines have bled into 21st century. Nestorius, which is another cool name of the 4th century, Nestorius does this kind of weird mixture of the 
of Jesus Christ. So the Creed of Chalcedon had to kind of clarify this too because he emphasizes two separate natures, which is true, the nature of God and the nature of humanity. And, re- and if, I want this to be clear because we've been talking about this, friends. Jesus Christ had everything that we had. His mind, his thoughts, his, his, his actions were human just like ours. And at the same time, he had the divine nature, which is what verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 says. He was God. So he was fully God and completely human. But Nestorius couldn't quite picture the one person concept. He couldn't understand like, well, how does one God and one, and one human nature really combine into one person? Like, how does that work? So instead of, of saying two natures, one person, he says two natures, two persons. So Nestorius kind of makes this even weirder by saying that Jesus Christ had two different persons. He was two different persons. So how did that appear in the first century? We don't know, but Nestorius confuses the, pa- the fact that now we have two distinct persons. Jesus, the man, wasn't really God because he's a separate person until God, the Son, inhabits his body. And so we have these weird two elements of two people living within each other, but we don't understand how they interact. One more. Hang in there, friends. Just hang in there a little bit more. We have one more weirdness coming out in this Christological debate in the fourth in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, which was Eutychianism, or Eutychus. There's another cool name for you, so if you're going to have a baby that's a boy, we got three possibilities today. So Eutychus establishes, or Eutychianism, establishes this concept of a mixture. So I don't know if you've ever blended a, a milkshake and you throw in a banana, you throw in some, uh, some strawberries, and I think my friend Henry here puts in peanut butter. I don't know. So you, you throw in all of these elements into the cup, into your Nutribullet, or whatever you have if you're fancier, uh, you put it in there and you throw in milk and water and some protein to, to buff up, whatever it is, and you mix it all to turn it into one essence, right? And then what happens? You, you drink that. So you're no longer just drinking the banana. You're no longer just drinking the, 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 the strawberry. You have a mixture of the elements. So Eutychius kind of established this concept of a new essence that was formed. Jesus, the Son, the divine God, mixed with the human nature, like they, they blended together, and they came up with a new essence. So he's not fully divine. He's not fully human. It's a mixture of the both. And that's why the Chalcedonian Creed says there's no division, there's no separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, which means they are distinct. The natures are distinct. And it establishes this in, in light of everything that was being taught at that day. Friends, this is 400 years in the making of controversy in the Chalcedonian Creed, 451. People were not understanding what is going on here with Christ until people stood up for truth. Because if you have no one to stand up for truth, 
then the lines will always be blurred. It's the same thing I was talking about in our marriage conference yesterday night with, 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 with the people that were there. And I told them specifically, I've told them this world has mixed together their concept of marriage and they've developed their own understanding of marriage. So much so that they say, you can live together, experience each other, live together for three, four, five years together, see how it works out. And if it doesn't work, just leave, you know, pick up your, your, your cell phone, your toothbrush and, and, and go. You don't need to be there. Or they're like, well, you know what, get married and test it for four, three to four years and if it doesn't work in these three to four years and you realize that his feet stink, that, that she doesn't brush her teeth, that she doesn't look good without makeup, then just leave. Get an annulment. It's all good. Go on to the next. Because marriage has developed this kind of blurred line of we don't know what marriage is because we've avoided what the Word of God says. And so we've had the liberty to make or invent marriage in however we want to do it. When we don't stand up for truth, that begins to blend. That's why when people come here, and we've dealt a lot with this in our Spanish service, and people come together, they want to get baptized, they want to serve God, and they come to us and they say, we want to do this, but we're not married and we're living together. It's like the story of, 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 of so many people. And we're not married, we're, not, I mean, we're living together, but we're not married, and, but we want to get baptized, and we're like, well, you can't. Well, why not? Well, because you're living in sin. But we're not having sex. Well, that's between you and God. I don't know. I don't live with you. And other people are like, well, we could stop for until we get baptized. Oh, well, no, because then you're going to keep doing it. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to redefine marriage and be like, well, I can see your heart. You really want to be in this. You really want to do well and, and get better. Well, friends, no, it doesn't work. I had to tell somebody just recently, which shocked me. Someone came up to me and asked me, I want to get baptized. And I was like, oh, really? Well, what's the, what's the problem? Because I see you kind of burdened. He's like, well, I've been coming here for, for several weeks, and, and, and the word of God has been bringing this conviction to my heart. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And, and I'm like, that's good. He's like, well, I'm married and, 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 but I want to get baptized. And I'm like, well, what's the problem? You're married, uh, legally married? He's like, yeah, I'm, we're legally married. And I'm like, well, well, what's the issue here? And he's like, well, my wife lives with me with another man. And I was like, I was like trying to figure this out like Chalcedon. I was like, three, one, like how does this work? Like what kind of marriages? This is like a, a new type of marriage. I was like, hold on, bro. I haven't heard about this yet. Explain this to me. Well, it's easy. I, my wife needed some uh, benefits from my citizenship, and I needed some benefits from her taking care of me in the health world. And so we don't do anything with each other. We just uh, live together, but she has her lover there. He lives with us. I'm like, all three of you guys like have breakfast together? You guys are just chilling together? And like that, that's, that's your marriage? Okay. Well, no. <laughs> and I said, well, brother, you can't. You got you to gotta, like fix this. And, and first of all, that marriage was never con concealed by God. This is wrong. And you're making her sin by committing adultery because she's sleeping with her lover and you're married to her. And he's like, yeah, I kind of figured, but I wanted to see if there was a way around it. I'm like, bro, there's no way around this. You got to get yourself right with God because we're not free to invent 
doctrine, my man. We're not. And, and, and so that's why this is important. When the fact that I'm emphasizing so much time on this is not to just entertain you and make, and make, and make you feel like, oh, well, I learned some good historical, uh, uh, historical theology today. No, that's not the purpose. The purpose means that we have to stand up for Scripture, defend Scripture, and let people know what truth says. And so when people tell you that Jesus Christ isn't God or isn't fully human, you have to stand up for that. And you have to understand, no, 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 Jesus Christ had to be God and had to be human because his work had to be accomplished. There was a need for us to be saved by God and by a perfect human being that lived in our place and died in our place and bore the sin that you and I could never atone for. So that's why this person of Jesus Christ is a necessary factor in all of this. And we have to come to this understanding so that you don't leave here with, with a superficial understanding of Jesus Christ. It, it, it has to come down to that point where I've told you this time and time again. You can't have a superficial Christianity anymore, my friends, because the world is going to tear you apart. The world's going to bombard you. If you don't think that the scripture is authoritative, the world out there is going to demolish you. If you don't think that Jesus Christ is truly God, the world out there is going to tear you to pieces. You don't know. But that's why we're here. We're here to learn the word of God and know the truth about this. And that's why this emphasis and this time in this scripture is so important as a pastor for me to give to you pastorally. So we can edify the saints, so we can build up the saints, and you can be confident to know that your Savior is truly God and truly man. Now, we go back to the question that we presented last week. Why is this the case then? Why is it important for us to know that he is fully God and fully human being? What does this have to do with us? Well, I want you to open up now and go back to Hebrews, that we've been in Hebrews to find support on this doctrine. Keep your hand in Hebrews we're going to be jumping back and forth. I want to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 and on. And it says, For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we were speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he's referencing Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We'll stop right there. The reason for Christ's humanity is evident in the original plan of God. So I'm going to give you four reasons, and most likely we're not going to get to even the second one, but four reasons on why Jesus Christ had to be human in order to accomplish his work. So reason number one in this, if you're taking down notes, put down that the Son became a man to fulfill the original design for 
humanity. Now, I know that's a long sentence. Just put original design had to be fulfilled. How does this work out? Well, if you read a little bit of what Hebrews is speaking on, it's talking about the original intention of human beings, God's original design. He created humans in his image. And after the creation, what did God always say? It is good. Can you believe that? He looked at you and said, this creation is good. Good. You and I are made in the imago Dei or in the image of God, and that image is originally good. The intention for God to create us was for his purpose, his glory, and he made us in his image to show off the greatest part of his creation. That's what we are. We are God's ultimate creation. You could go back to Genesis and, and read the first three chapters and understand this a little bit more. But, but God put in us this image of God. That's why we have to respect each other, friends. That's why it doesn't matter if you're Hispanic. It doesn't matter if you're Anglo. It doesn't matter if, if you're African American. That doesn't matter in the presence of God because we are all made in his image, and all were intentionally designed to bring him glory. And it was in this image that we were designed to exercise dominion in the world. Dominion is a big word. I'll, I'll simplify it. We were designed to rule over this world. That's why if you look at the Genesis account, God says, name the animals. He, brought the, he brings the animals before him. He shows him the garden. He he's like, this is all you, man. This is all for you. Tend to take care of it. This is your place, and you are going to govern over it. You will rule over this world. It established what is known in political terms as a proper vice regency. We were co-rulers with God on earth. Now, in modern times, that seems a little bit daunting to, to think that we were designed to rule over the world because we have centuries upon centuries of tyrannical figures that have blurred that understanding. We have massacres happening. We have holocausts happen, happening. We have genocide happening with, in all parts of the world. And to think that we were created to rule doesn't really make any sense. Well, the original creation was a creation without sin. Remember I told you guys two weeks ago that our biggest dilemma here is not, any, is not our job, it's not the lack of money, it's not that we're Hispanics or Latino origin, it's not any of that stuff. Our biggest dilemma on the world is that we're sinners and we need to be saved and rescued and redeemed. So before this fall or before this, this sin occurred, we were as vice regents with God, co-rulers with God. Psalm 8 which is what Hebrews is mentioning, 
It takes us back to our original purpose and points us forward to a moment of full and complete restoration. So what Psalm 8 is doing, and the, the reason why the writer of Hebrews is using it, is that it takes us back and it reminds us of what we were originally. However, it also points us forward to a time when we will be restored back to that original design. So there is a moment of failure. There is original design, a period of fallenness, and then a future hope of glory when we will be restored back to the original design. Through Adam or through humanity, we have been brought into this failure or a consequence or a curse of sin. One man did this to us. We inherited this corruption through a disobedient person that didn't reflect his purpose. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Why? Because he listened to what the enemy wanted him to do. And instead of obeying God, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They rebelled against God, and therefore we inherited this corruption. However, read with me what Hebrews verse 9 says, chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For who? For who? Everyone. Here we have a clear indication, once again, using the figurative language or, or the metaphoric language in Psalm chapter 8, the writer of the Hebrews is, is telling us this. This is how we were, and we failed, and then God made Jesus the way we were, little lower than the angels in his human nature. However, Jesus did not fail. Jesus remained Obedient. I love how Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says that even though Adam was disobedient, Jesus Christ remained obedient for us. You and I, disobedient. Jesus Christ, obedient. And because Jesus lived obediently like us, you got to remember this. We're talking about the nature of Jesus Christ, his human nature. Exactly the way we were designed in that exact formula, he was designed and he was given this authority in the world and he lived like us. And even though living like us, we disobeyed in our human nature, Jesus Christ lived like us and he was obedient and therefore brought grace in his human nature. Basically what Jesus does to function here is this mediator type of role where you and I were supposed to be obedient children and we weren't. 
If you look at your life now, and you put yourself, what does obedience mean toward God? Forget about obedience to your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, and all that stuff. Think about what obedience means to God today. Have you been obedient to God? Have you lived a life of obedience? What does that look like? What does it mean to be a Christian and live in obedience to God? Well, we look at the life of Jesus Christ, and we model that because he lived like us. However, many times we just focus on the life of Adam, and we kind of say, well, Adam is more like us since he was human, and Adam failed, and therefore we follow Adam. But the scripture never tells us to represent or to imitate Adam. The scripture calls us to imitate Christ and to imitate his role as a human being. Can you, you understand what that means? It, when the scripture, when Paul calls us to imitate Christ, he's not telling us imitate God. Be, be like a God here on earth. We're not called to be gods here on earth. We, we can never be a God. We're not Jehovah Witnesses that could one day, or a Mormon could one day become a God. We're not. We are lower. So the scripture doesn't call us to be like a God. The scripture calls us to be like Jesus Christ, who was human like us and listened and obeyed his Father. We are called to follow in those footsteps. So sometimes we give ourselves this excuse. I can't be like Jesus Christ. I mean, come on, the Son of God, dude. You yourself said it, that he was God. Well, yes, he was God, but he was also human. And so sometimes it's easier for us to be like, bro, come on. I mean, come on. Can, can I be like Jesus? Like, ain't no way I could be like Jesus. And I understand that. Sometimes in humility, we're like, man, we could never do this. But then that's when we remember, my friends, what we talked about just a little while ago. He gave us his justice. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his obedience. He gave us his mercy. He gave us his love. It was him that lives in us. That's why Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And because Christ lives in me, I can act and move and walk like Christ. So we got to get out of this concept of like, oh, I can never be like that because that's just, you know, I'm human. I'm, I, I'm, I fail. I'm not perfect, man. I'm not perfect. I understand that. But bro, there comes a moment in time where you have to check yourself. And if you don't check yourself, then tell your wife to check you. And if she can't check you because you'll get upset, then me as a pastor will check you and be like, bro, give it up. Can't just keep living your life excusing yourself for all your errors. You need to repent. You need to face God and say, God, I'm sorry. I repent for my sinful way of living. I'm going to follow you with your power and your grace and through your Holy Spirit I can be the man or the woman that I need to be before God because you have given me the power to do so. I gotta escape this this wanky wishy-washy Christianity and start living the way God lived in Jesus Christ as a human being. One of uh, my favorite commentary writers Tom Schreiner says the only one who has genuinely lived the kind of life that humans were intended to live under God was Jesus Christ. And that's who we model. He was the only one who ever lived the way he 
we were originally designed to live. Another great New Testament commentator, Steve Wellem, says, Jesus is restoring the image of God in people by making them truly human again. Can you imagine that? We are not really functioning the way we were supposed to be functioning, but Jesus Christ restores that image of Christ in us so that we can fully be human again. See, sin has separated us from what we were intended to be, but Christ is uniting us back to him by imputing his life in us. And so, friends, that's what we're going to celebrate today as we take communion. So I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us in this moment of worship before we partake of the bread. And while they're doing so, I'm going to read to you from the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the ordinance and this institution of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and on. So I want you to have all of what we were speaking about in your heart as we jump into this next section of our worship. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which one of them it could be who was going to do this. So friends, we have the Lord bringing this ordinance some call it a sacrament to the table and establishing it for us and I want you to prepare your hearts today that's why we put up a Facebook video earlier in the week because we don't take this lightly we want to make sure that you guys come ready for this this isn't just like oh it's communion Sunday oh I forgot let me this is a moment of preparation this is a moment of evaluation This is a moment of checking ourselves before God and remembering what he has done for us.